morning. All right, I think we're ready to get started this morning. If everybody could take the seats and we'll start with a word of prayer. I'd like to begin today with a prayer of gospel truth that I normally use for children's catechesis, but it seemed appropriate today, both given the topic of today's sermon and the topic of the Sunday School material. Heavenly Father, thank you for creating us, male and female, after your own image. Thank you for writing your moral law on our hearts. Thank you for granting us the privilege of imaging forth your perfection to your creation. Thank you for offering to us union and communion with you for obedience. But we have sinned against your moral law. We have made you to be our enemy. We have brought corruption upon your creation. We know that our disobedience has made us wholly inclined to sin. We know that we now owe you a debt of service that can never be paid. And we know that we deserve your wrath for our disobedience. Thank you for your steadfast love for the elect. Thank you for vowing to rescue them by way of a redeemer, one who would come from the seed of the woman to conquer sin and death. Thank you for fulfilling your promise to them in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, son of God, you have assumed a human nature by being born of a woman. You alone have lived a life of personal, perfect, exact and entire obedience under the law. You alone have taken the penalty for the sin of your people upon yourself at the cross, bodily ascended into heaven and are now seated at the right hand of God the Father. You alone offer union and communion with the Father to all who are united to you by faith. Holy Spirit, cause us to accept God's right judgment of our guilt. Cause us to stop seeking justification under the moral law, the very law which condemns us. Holy Spirit, put within us a desire to receive and rest in the finished work of Christ as his obedience and satisfaction are now and always have been the only hope for our right standing before a holy God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we will be studying Contending for Christ Contramundum, Exile and Incarnation in the Life of Athanasius. This will be the first of two lessons on standing firm for the sake of the gospel. We will have a break next week and pick up on September 12th. So let's get started. Is the Son of God really God? Or is he just like God? Is Jesus Christ truly God in the flesh, or is he merely a created being? These are the questions that surrounded the life of Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius was born in A.D. 298 in Egypt. In A.D. 328, he became Bishop of Alexandria at the age of 30 years old. 
and he died at the age of 75 in A.D. 373. Athanasius was viewed by his people as their bishop for his whole life, even though 17 of his 45 years as bishop were spent in forced exile. There aren't a lot of details recorded about the life of Athanasius, but there is a lot recorded about the controversies that surrounded his life. Athanasius' main conflict was around the doctrine of a man named Arius, who was deacon of Alexandria. Arius believed that the Son of God was God's first creative act, as opposed to being divine in and of himself, Arius believed the Son of God to be merely a created being with divine attributes. Arius misunderstood the truth of Jesus growing, getting tired, and not knowing the date of his return as referring to the fact that Jesus Christ is a lesser God than God the Father. He also did not understand that the Christ of Scripture is God himself, God the Son, and the second member of the Trinity. In addition, Arius misunderstood the hypostatic union, the union of two natures of Jesus Christ, divine and human, in his one person. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Therefore, he has two natures, divine and human. Jesus Christ continued to exist fully as God when he added a human nature to himself. Therefore, there is a union in one person of Christ of a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. Moreover, Arius misunderstood the word firstborn, meaning that the Son was created as God's first act of creation, thereby denying that he is the self-existent and immutable God. This heresy continues in some form today. In regards to Christ, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons hold views that are similar to Arianism. So back in A.D. 319, when Athanasius was a little over 20 years old, Arius, the deacon of Alexandria, wrote a letter to Alexander, bishop of Alexandria, in which he argued that if the son, Jesus, is truly a son, then like all sons, he must have had a beginning. And also, there must have been a time when he was not. In A.D. 321, a synod was held, and Arius was removed from his diaconate and publicly declared to be a heretic in the areas of Alexandria and in Egypt. Almost nothing written by Arius has been preserved, so practically all that we know of Arius comes from those who called him Arius the heretic. Quite a legacy, right? So, now Constantine, who had 
legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire in A.D. 313 with the issuing of the Edict of Milan called the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 to deal with the Arian controversy. 318 bishops, as well as non-bishops, including both Athanasius and Arius, gathered for a period of three months. Out of their efforts came the Nicene Creed of A.D. 325. Now, the Nicene Creed that you're probably familiar with is the one of A.D. 381. This earlier version, written in 325, is the one that Athanasius interacts with for his lifetime. And it reads like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousion is the Greek word for that, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. Who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. But those who say there was a time when he was not and... He was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, which given the controversies of Athanasius' life, we'll see was a bit of an overstatement. So, while Athanasius didn't write the Nicene Creed of 325 A.D., he was convinced of the truths contained therein. Athanasius became a writer in favor of the orthodoxy presented in the Nicene Creed for the next 45-plus years of his life, whereas Eusebius of Nicomedia, which is modern-day Turkey, picked up the cause of Arius. After a few years of being mentored by Alexander, Athanasius became Bishop of Alexandria in A.D. 328. Even though in the area of Alexandria and Egypt, Arianism was eradicated, elsewhere, decades of time went by where there were actually very few bishops who affirmed the Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. Even though all but two of the 318 who were gathered signed it, 
most of the bishops in the East during Athanasius' lifetime were still Arian in their Christology and hated having their convictions constantly referred to as heretical by Athanasius. They hated being called Arian, being that Arius held a lesser office, so they plotted to have Athanasius removed from power. So let's take a, minute, a moment to step through some of the details of this sequence of events. First, they accused him of levying illegal taxes. Then they accused him of being ordained too young. Then they accused him of using magic. Then they accused him of subsidizing treasonable persons. To get rid of him, the Arian bishops, including Eusebius, the one who had taken up the Arian cause, conspired to get a bishop named Arsenius to conceal himself in a monastery so that they could claim that Athanasius had had him killed and cut off his hand and was using it for magic. So again, Constantine didn't know what to make of all this. So he called a council in Tyre. The bishops were gathered to determine Athanasius' fate, but Athanasius also had a lot of friends who he sent out to find Arsenius, who they found and brought to Tyre secretly while the trial was going on. So at the right moment, Athanasius asked, did you know Arsenius personally? To which the bishop said, yes. At which time Athanasius brought out Arsenius alive for all to see, but with a cloak over his hands. And the bishops demanded, holding up a human hand, and why did you cut off his hand? At which time he removed the cloak, revealing two hands. And Athanasius replied, and whence did they cut off the third hand? But believe it or not, which goes to show the type of people that Athanasius was dealing with, he was still condemned. And he escaped in a boat along with four other bishops to Constantinople to try to make his case, if he could, to the emperor. I don't know if you can see Constantinople up there. Here's Alexandria, and Tyre's here, Constantinople up there. But the bishops, got to the emperor first with a new, ac new accusation that Athanasius was trying to starve the capital city by not allowing wheat shipments to leave Alexandria. And with this, in AD 336, he was exiled to Treveri, right there, which is near Luxembourg. This was the first 
of five periods of exile for Athanasius. The next year, Constantine died, and the empire was divided between his children, Constantius, Constans, and Constantine II, two of which sided with Athanasius and were able to restore him to his role as Bishop of Alexandria. That is, until Eusebius the Arian persuaded Constantius to replace Athanasius and send him into his second exile in A.D. 339. In A.D. 346, Constans, and you can see the division of the three, who, uh, the three sons who took over the division of the Roman Empire. Constans threatened war on his brother Constantius if he wouldn't reinstate Athanasius. So Athanasius was reinstated at least for four years. In A.D. 350, Constans was murdered, and Constantius was freed to drive Athanasius out of Alexandria again. But this time, it was very bloody. Athanasius escaped to a desert monastery and into his third period of exile. This was a very harrowing, but also a very fruitful period of Athanasius' life. It was at this time that Athanasius wrote over half of his collected works. And it was those works that brought the collapse of Arianism. So, in A.D. 362, he returned to Alexandria under the rule of Emperor Julian, the first really pagan emperor in a long time. And it took Julian only a few months to banish Athanasius into his fourth exile. In A.D. 363, Emperor Julian died and was replaced by an emperor named Jovian. Jovian reinstated Athanasius in A.D. 363, but in A.D. 364, Jovian died and Athanasius was again exiled. So, after returning to Alexandria in A.D. 366, Athanasius spent his final years repairing the damage done during the earlier years of violence and dissent and exile. He resumed writing and preaching undisturbed, and in A.D. 373, Athanasius died peacefully in his own bed, surrounded by those who loved him. So, what can we take away from the life of Athanasius? Piper has seven, seven takeaways that he uh, walks through in his biography. The first takeaway is that defending and explaining doctrine is for the sake of the gospel. So let's go back and reread the Nicene Creed of A.D. 325 with eyes on gospel. We believe in one God, 
the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousion, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. Who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered and the third day he rose and again and ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. But those who say there was a time when he was not and he was not before he was made. And he was made out of nothing. Or he is of another substance. Or essence. Or the Son of God is created. Or changeable. Or alterable. They are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So in our last book study, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage, we named the Trinity as a first-tier issue, as far as issues go. So why was it a first-tier issue, if anybody can remember these categories? Okay, important to salvation and it's a gospel issue. So what does the deity of Christ have to do with the gospel? Everything? Yes, but can you work it out? Why is it important that, God, that Christ be truly God? Okay, and live? Yeah, okay. Any other ideas? That, that would make Christ a liar, so he's not much of a savior at, at that point. Okay. He was without sin. Okay. Um, could not a man be without sin? No, not fallen man, right? Okay, so let me see if we, I can help us out a little bit. On, we just recently went through question 23 of the New City Catechism, which asks, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And this is the answer. See if you can look for the answer to the question that I was asking about. Why or what does the deity of Christ have to do with the gospel? The answer is that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also, 
that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. So the second part was definitely what Art was pointing at. What about the first part? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Why is that necessary? So why is it necessary for Christ to be God? It's, it's the, per, yeah, his, his perfection is what God requires, right? It's what the law demands. So Christ's obedience and satisfaction are now and always have been the only hope for sinful man's right standing before a holy God. But his obedience and satisfaction as a man would not have been perfect and effective unless he was also truly God. Piper's second takeaway is that joyful courage is the calling of a faithful shepherd. Athanasius stared down false teachers in the church. He confronted emperors and he risked the disdain of parents because he recruited so many young people to martyrdom for the sake of Christ. The life of Athanasius should inspire every pastor to stand his ground wherever biblical truth is at stake. And it should inspire them to do it with joy. So here's a question. If fighting for the cause of Christ does not bring you joy, then what is the problem? And what is the solution? This is something we all struggle with. We, we've lost sight of our standing before God. Okay? Piper says that if fighting for the cause of Christ does not bring you joy, then you are fighting the wrong battle. Your battle should be waged in your closet, on your knees in prayer, before you contend for doctrinal orthodoxy. It's a spiritual battle that needs to take place. Piper's third takeaway is that loving Christ includes loving true propositions about Christ. Piper says that propositions about Christ carry convictions that can mean the difference between heaven and hell. Propositions like, there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable 
these propositions were damnable, meaning that they damned the souls of those who embraced them. So, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, Christ unites and doctrine divides? In light of Piper's bullet point here, loving Christ includes loving true propositions about Christ. I'm sure you've all heard this phrase, Christ unites and doctrine divides. A false view, okay? Christ made truth claims. That's, kind of, that's what Marty was saying earlier as well, right? Okay? You're creating a, a false dichotomy that as, as if Christ stands apart from his truth claims. Uh, what is Christ apart from his truth claims? What is Christ for us apart from his truth claims? <laughs> so, Piper says that Athanasius would have abominated the contemporary liberal idea that we can have a relationship with Christ apart from any knowledge of him. Right? The idea that Christ unites and doctrine divides is simply replacing biblical truth about Christ with a meaningless word. So apart from the doctrine, the word Christ is meaningless. All right, so, so there, there, yeah, Christ does not exist apart from his, his teaching. Piper's fourth takeaway is that the truth of biblical language must be vigorously protected with non-biblical language. How does that settle with you? What do you think you might mean by that? Okay. Yes, that's a good place to start. Sure. So, we'll use the creed language. So, what are your feelings about the phrase, or how does it settle with you when you hear the phrase, no creed but Christ? What is, what is intended to be communicated by the phrase, no creed but Christ, do you think? Anti-doctrine? Sometimes no creed but Christ is biblicistic language, right? It's saying, we just believe what the Bible says. What's the problem with that? Okay. We're all fallen sinners, right? We're all subject to misinterpretation of the Bible. It takes the body, right? So... The Arians were the original proponents of no creed but Christ. The Arians claimed the pious high ground, stating that they only believed the Bible. 
Athanasius realized that men can and will use Bible language to communicate things that are false to the Bible. The Arians were experts at this. They would affirm every line of scripture thrown at them by twisting it to suit their own interpretations and while at the same time holding to the idea that Jesus was a created being. This word that we learned about in the Nicene Creed, see if I can go back to that real quick, this homoousion, being of one substance. Uh, it, with the Father is a non-biblical term. <clears throat> but it just so happened to be the only term available that would keep people from using biblical terms to say biblically false things. Piper's fifth takeaway. Yes. Yes. So the, the idea here is that we need non-biblical language to protect what the Bible was actually trying to communicate. Right? So what I, what I said was that homoousion, which is being, of, being one of one substance with the Father, was a non-biblical term, but it just so happened to be the only term available that would keep people from using biblical terms to say biblically false things. Okay. Piper's fifth takeaway. Widespread and long-held doctrinal error in the visible church does not mean that the church is beyond reform. Let that sink in for a moment. Those who professed Christ disagreed about his deity and the Trinity for 300 years prior to the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. And up until that point, the church had not taken an official position on the side of orthodoxy. So what doctrinal issues do professing Christians seem to be lost in hopeless battles for in our time? What things do we see in the visible church today that look like there is no hope for reconciliation in the visible church. Okay, so uh, biblical inerrancy is something that the church uh, evangelicals have come together at, at least at one point to affirm biblical inerrancy, but, but in terms of the worldwide visible church, that is still a topic of, that, of debate. Okay. Right, yeah, we talked about that before. 
Right. So the idea that church, the church, the visible church, ought to be abandoned because it can't fill its role that it's been ordained to fill. Justification, right? Penal substitutionary atonement, right? This is an this is an area that it seems like there's no way that we're going to get reconciliation in the visible church on this topic. <laughs> okay. Can you think of anything else? What about our contemporary issues of like uh, biblical manhood and womanhood? Right? Do we, do we feel like we're going to get any sort of resolution on the, uh, the role, uh, you know, whether it's appropriate to have female pastors or... Uh, in, in leadership, um, what about spiritual gifts? Are, th are these things beyond hope? So, to th the things to think about here is, you know, is Christianity stuck in a perpetual stalemate on these issues? Are they going to come together at some point? <laughs> okay. But the lesson that Piper is saying here that we ought to take from Athanasius is that these things are not beyond reform, right? So for Athanasius, the amount of time that had elapsed and the number of people professing Christ who disagreed were not what defined what or how important a truth was. Okay? Or whether or not it ought to be fought for. For him, there were no stalemates when God was involved. Right, there's no official consensus, right? But for that period of time, there were those who claimed Christ who did not see him as truly God, right? Okay. Piper's sixth takeaway. Don't aim to preach only in categories of thought that can be readily understood by this generation. Aim at creating biblical categories of thought that are not present in our contemporary culture. When I first read this, I thought, oh, is he calling preaching to be novel or inventive or something like that? I wasn't exactly sure what he was trying to communicate. So who has heard of the pilgrim, pilgrim principle and the indigenous principle of the church? These foreign words, because it was totally foreign for me when I heard Piper talk about this the first time. Not that I didn't know these scriptures, but the, the words that he used were foreign. So the indigenous principle says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This is 1 Corinthians 9 verse 22. The pilgrim principle says, do not be conformed to this world 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans 12, verse 2. The call here from Piper with lessons learned from Athanasius is not to sell out to the indigenous principle. The most precious truths of the Bible are counterintuitive to the fallen human mind. Athanasius found that the orthodox understanding of the Trinity is surely one of these things. It is far easier for the human mind to say that the Son, like all other sons, once was not and came into being, than to say that the Son who took on flesh is one in essence with the Father. It's much more difficult, right? Alongside the biblical indigenous principle of accommodation and contextualization, Athanasius would plead with us for a commitment to the pilgrim principle of confrontation and transformation and recategorization. So, can anyone name other non-intuitive or difficult biblical truths, right? Particularly for Calvinists. What are some things that we ha would have a hard time explaining to sinful man? God's sovereignty, okay? In relation to what? To, to election? Okay, so here's one category, right? God is sovereign in his election and yet righteously pours out his wrath on the wicked. This is something that would be difficult for fallen man to accept, right? Can you think of another one? The holy, so what he calls us to, right? So he... Uh, he imposes a requirement on us that we cannot possibly fulfill in and of ourselves, right? Right. That's, that's a good one as well, right? What is it that we are doing when we are called by the Great Commission to proclaim the gospel if God is sovereign in, the, in those who he is, you know, uh, who he's gathering to himself, right? This, it's a difficult thing to try to explain. What about um, the existence of pain and misery and sin in this world? How do you explain that to a non-believer? Right? If, if God is the creator and he is sovereign and he is in control over a world that is full of sin and disease and pain and misery, how can he fill that role and not be sinful himself, right? Not be the author of sin, where the Bible proclaims him to be perfectly holy.
these are glorious truths. We should not shy away from them, right? There is much to proclaim about who God is, this God that we worship, who he is in digging into these truths. But they are difficult, though. But, yeah, the, the call that Piper is pushing for here is don't shy away from difficult truths, right? What about uh, sin committed by finite beings is deserving of eternal punishment? This will be a difficult one for those in this room. Ready? Christians who are justified apart from works are ultimately judged according to their works. Both of those are biblical truths. How do you reconcile those two things? Right? Okay? It's not easy, though. It's not easy to answer these types of questions. How about this one? Ready? God does not lie, but he still declares regenerate sinners righteous in his sight. How could he call me a sinner righteous? Right? Again, go ahead. Right. But these are things that we ought not to have, you know, they're not simple answers to these questions, but we ought not to shy away from them, right? Right. But, but just because these are truths that won't be accepted by natural man doesn't mean that we should shy away from preaching them, right? Yes. Well, the ones that we talked about previously were just, we talked about Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons, right? The, uh, those Christological error. Um, so the Nicene Creed of 325 didn't fully develop the, um, the Spirit's role, um, but that came later in 381. Um, uh, Athanasius was quick to call anybody who didn't believe with him. Arian, so uh, it's difficult to really claim like what Arianism is, um, but certainly, yeah, those who would deny. Yeah, so definitely it is, uh, you know, error, right? Um, I don't know, Blake, would you call that Arianism? No, Arianism particularly has to do with the person of Christ, you know. There, I mean, there, there are other errors that have to do with the Trinity. Right. Right. But it is, like we talked about before, though, it is a first-tier issue, though. Right? Denying the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, final takeaway. Piper's final takeaway is that we must not assume that old books and old theologians are necessarily wrong, right? They may contain some glorious truths. So often we write off someone with categories that we don't personally use, right? It, it is not that the early ages had no blind spots, 
And it's not like we have no blind spots, right? We just have different blind spots. So the only way to free ourselves from our contemporary blind spots is to read old books written by old theologians. So I think we'll, we'll close today with a quote from Parker T. Williamson that Piper provided. Kind of sums up the experience of Athanasius and the application for ourselves. It says this, Athanasius set his name to the creed which expressed his belief. And for 50 years, he stood unswervingly by that confession. Every argument that ingenuity could invent was used to prove it false. Bishops met together in great numbers, condemned his views, and invoked upon him the curse of God. Emperors took sides against him, banished him time and time again, and chased him from place to place, setting a reward on his head. At one time, all bishops of the church were persuaded or coerced to pronounce sentence against him, so that the phrase originated, Athanasius against the world, Athanasius contramundum. But with all conscience to tamper, sorry, with all this pressure bearing on him, he changed his ground not one inch. His clear eye saw the truth once, and he did not permit his conscience to tamper with temptations to deny it. His loyal loyalty to the truth made him a great power for good and a great blessing to the churches of his own and of all times. Okay? That's all we have for today, and we will be we will have a break next week, and we'll pick up on September 12th with another good one, which is Contending for the Facts for the Sake of the Faith, J. Gresham Machen's Constructive Controversy with Modernism. <laughs>